Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs of life. Today I have with me Neil Gray. Neil, it's good to have you here with us, and um, I'm glad that you could pencil me in in your busy day. Hmm. So Brad is your cousin, so I met you through Brad as a Facebook friend, and uh, Brad was like, uh, he needs a lot of help. And I, and I was like, um, okay. So um, then we got to talk, and I think we got in a few theological conversations, but the first time we met in person— uh, was a Saturday morning, or actually a Friday night, when I came and looked at some yep. of your plumbing, yep. you know, because everybody knows I'm a plumber, right? right? Yeah. And so uh, we we worked all of that out together, got it done. Hopefully, you've you've patched the hole so nobody could see my it looks perfect my, my redneck in your yeah. in engineering there. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where you were raised? Were you raised here in Little Rock, or tell us a little about about growing up. So I grew up in southwest Little Rock, Landmark, if, uh, south towards East End in that area. Man, a pretty normal childhood. Mom, dad, brother, grew up in church. We had a little couple acres off of off the road where my grandparents lived, right down the trail from me. My brother, when he grew up, he lived uh, up on the road. I mean, we were just we were just all real close knit family, right off the road. And so I grew up in church. Grew up right down the road, going to school. I mean, everything went pretty normal childhood up and up until college, somewhere around there. Okay, so you had a younger brother, older brother, older brother, four okay. years older. All right, and so now your your dad is an avid hunter, fisherman, or is that your uncle? That's okay, because I get all that's of you. Brad's dad. He's I get a, all of you mixed up. Yeah, yeah. No, he's Brad's whole side of his family's avid hunters. My dad was a, was definitely an avid fisherman. Okay, but yeah, no, they're always in the in the deer woods. Okay. So are you the hunter or the fisherman or the stay out of trouble? Yeah. Um, really, I, I mean, I'll, I'll fish here and there. Actually, Brad and uh, and Uncle Ronnie, his dad, are supposed to take me to the deer woods for the first time. I've actually never been to the deer woods. I do a lot of dove hunting with some uh, buddies, but that's that's. Do you do any extent. duck hunting here? I have never actually been duck hunting either. I haven't either, but it's kind of like golf. It's too expensive to enjoy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you graduated Guess high school, moved into college. Where did you go to college at? I started at UCA. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started at Arkansas Tech. So, you know, uh, we would we would mock the UCA fight song to sing UCA sucks. Da 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 da. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh so did you finish college there? No. Um man, I ended up I went to UCA, to Pulaski Tech, um, went to UALR. I actually finished at UALR, is okay. Finish, yeah. And you have a degree in advertising and marketing. Okay, and so and that's what you do now is you you're a salesman. Uh, yeah, for Pella, for Pella, Pella uh, yeah. and if they want to pay us for that plug, we'll sure, be more I'm sure than happy. Will. I'll send the bill. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought you know we could we could plug Brad a little bit, but I know he's not going to pay anything <laughs> to us for yeah. for that. Brad but, is a uh, he's a social media entrepreneur yeah uh, he knows how to use the the free resources yeah. available to him he, well i mean that that just kind of is fits his style though yeah. yeah yeah so um you said everything was normal until you kind of got into college so tell me a little bit about what happened there so yeah i played basketball my whole life and baseball my dad coached me in my, my whole life it's actually in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I was playing in a semi-league or semi-pro league in downtown Little Rock basketball. Went up for a layup before the game, just, you know, layup drills before the game, went up for a layup. And when I landed, I couldn't breathe. Something took my breath away and I could feel something, something was really wrong. And uh, my dad was there. So I went over there and got him and he drove me home and I was just holding myself up off the seat the whole way. I couldn't put any pressure on my back. And 
Uh, when I got home, he drugged me out of the car. My legs just almost went completely numb and paralyzed and found out that I'd herniated a disc in my back. Mm. So that's, uh, that's so just when from everything landing, changed. Just from landing. Yeah. The doctor said that, you know, from working out my whole life and playing basketball and all this, he said it was, it, it was inevitable. Like at some point that was going to herniate. So you have just proven to the listeners that if you don't work out and you don't play basketball and you sit around and fat and sassy mm-hmm. like me, that you'll live longer. That's that was my intent, and yeah. and less pain. Yeah, yeah, that was my intent. Yeah. So, did you have to have surgery or anything like that? Yep. I had actually ended up having two back surgeries. Um, after the first one, uh, it it was worse. Like he, the scar tissue started wrapping around everything. The disc reherniated, and a a cyst developed on the sciatic nerve where the disc was pushing. So, literally, like everything that could possibly go wrong with the surgery went wrong, and. Uh, it was miserable. So six months after that, he got me back in for a second surgery and the second surgery did the trick. I mean, it, it worked. Okay. So it was one of those things where it only moved when you hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. So, uh, but you were in between high school and college. So did you just kind of spend that summer recuperating or did you have to miss a semester of college or? Yeah, I, I missed. I think I missed my second semester of college. So I, I moved up to to UCA, moved out of the house for the first time, right after my, actually right after my first surgery. So I was just still in quite a bit of pain there. But then I came back and had my second surgery. I think I ended up taking a semester off, but uh, and then moved back out there after that. Okay. So then you said the the second tr- surgery did the trick. Did that alleviate all the pain? Physical therapy mm-hmm. helped with that. Yeah. I did physical therapy for, you know, a few months after that to strengthen the muscles. And, but yeah, after that, I mean, I was fine. It, it completely took the pain away. Okay. So then, then moving into college, um, what happened there that, that really kind of curved your life? So I didn't tell the doctor that it alleviated my pain. I told him that I was still in a ton of pain and up until my back surgery, playing basketball in in high school, growing up the way I did, if you asked me, I wouldn't have told you that I I'd lacked anything. You know, I was I was content and happy. I had a bright future ahead of me. But when I woke up in the hospital with that morphine pump in my arm, like I I found what I had been missing. You know, like I knew that, that I was in love and this this is what I needed. So after that surgery, he gave me an unlimited prescription of painkillers, and it you know said unlimited refills on the bottom. Mm-hmm. This was back in two thousand, so they just the regulation wasn't there and. And it was. I, I refilled that pain that pain pill bottle five times in one month. Nine ninety count pain pills five mm-hmm. times in one month. It's the same pharmacy. They never batted an eye. For four years, I was telling the doctor that it was still killing me. My back was hurting. I kept going back for appointments and all of this, and he just kept feeding me painkillers. Till finally, he realized after about four years that I was lying to him, and you know, kind of he cut me off after that. Yeah, because it it kind of really is difficult to be able to tell if somebody's actually in pain or not, sure. especially when it comes to the spine. You said in that second, was it the second surgery where you got the morphine that you just really? No, it was, it was the first one. Yeah. First yeah. surgery. I was, it, I was hooked pretty much immediately. Okay. Had you had addiction issues before or something where you just had to have it? No. no Whether no. it was substance or activity where I mean, you just had to do it? Possibly. And you know, I was I was 18 or 19 when I hurt myself. So up until that point, I had I think I'd smoked, you know, a few cigarettes, drinking with some buddies, you know, on the weekends in high school. And uh, but no, there was no indication that I was just gonna, you know, grab onto something and never let go. Right. Now morphine to me, it just makes me sick. I mean, I wouldn't take it if it was given to me. You right. know, it just and, and you know, with some people it it really t- kind of takes you into this euphoric land. Is mm-hmm. that is that what it did for you? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't mo- morphine was just an introduction to it, but you know, I, I got into oxycodone and and you know the oxycontin hydrocodones. Those were those were my drug of choice, and of course that's what I was prescribed after mm-hmm. that. So when you were cut off from the doctor, what happened? I was scared to death. First time in my life, I felt you know just utter fear. I had to figure out a way, you know, and so I did. Um, I started dealing drugs. You know, I, I'd met, of course, a ton of people who liked them as well throughout my four years. And so I had a ton of connections by then. So I started dealing drugs. I had a buddy who worked at a pharmacy and um, and he was also an addict. And so we worked out a deal. And, you know, by the time the DEA caught up to us, which was, I think, 
two about two and a half years after we started, we had stolen something like sixty thousand painkillers from from the pharmacy and several thousand Xanax and you know, just a whole bunch of narcotics from that pharmacy. So how do you know that you have this problem and then meet other people and it become kind of recreational without with you still really needing it? How does that like, how do you come to somebody and say, hey, I've got some pain medicine and it really makes me feel good. Do you want one? Right. I mean, is it is it really that simple? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, you know, especially when we first started, you know, because nobody knew the dangers of it. We were kids and, you know, I had a bunch of painkillers and people would come over to parties and I'd start handing them out, just passing them out to people. And there would be some people who, you know, oh, yeah, man, I'll get some more of those. And, and then people that would just blow my mind would, you know, so they'd stay the night, they would leave in the morning and they would just leave without asking me for more of them. And that just, that blew my mind. Like, how, how do you not want more of these, man? Right. You know, cause I was, I'd pass them out, mm-hmm. but it was just, that always blew my mind as how does somebody would just leave with not asking for more. Right. And so at that point in time, when you were, you, you were partying, had you come to a point of where you tried to get off of it and you experienced the DTs and that's why you wanted more? Or was it more of just, I want more of that feeling? So I, my addiction lasted almost 19 years for the first, I'd say, half a decade. Now, you're and not old enough to have had an addiction I am. since I'm, 18. I'm 40. Yeah. Well, you you look younger than me and, <laughs> and I'm 37. So. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, no. I've, Maybe yeah. I need to take some painkillers. <laughs> there you go. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, sit around, get fat and happy, and yeah. take some painkillers. Yeah. my lessons in life. Mm-hmm. Were you g- coming off the DTs and yeah. then having to get back on, or were yeah, you just yeah, wanting yeah. that euphoric state? Yeah, so for the first you know, several years, it was just fun. I mean, that was it. So I don't remember actually feeling withdrawal. because, And again, I had unlimited pain pills for four years. I never had withdrawals because I never didn't have them. You know? So, I mean, I would literally – got. It escalated so quickly that, I mean, right off the bat, within a couple of weeks of getting those painkillers and moving up to, to college, I was taking, you know, it says take two to four every four to six hours. I was taking 10 or 15 of them every hour or two, every hour or two. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night and take a handful of them, like go to pee in the middle of the night. I'd just take a handful and go back to sleep. You know, I wouldn't feel them. I just had them. So why not? And it was like that for at least four years. I just, I had them so I could take as many as I wanted. Um, after that, I had the, the, you know, my buddy that worked at the pharmacy. So I had as many as I wanted and never ran out again. And so for, you know, six or seven years, it was just fun. It was just a ton of fun. And I never really had the bad parts of it. But after, after the DEA popped him and, and I had to figure out other ways to do it. And then it got, you know, I ended up kind of in the streets more, you know, I, I became an actual drug dealer where I was dealing with a ton of other drug dealers and it, uh, it just became much more dangerous. And then, you know, those are the times when I started running out of stuff and I'd have to figure out a way. And then I realized like just how much trouble I was in because those, those, that detox, man, it's, it's no joke. I mean, you're already addicted enough in your head, you know, even if there was no physical symptoms, it's a, it's a terribly difficult thing to break. But man, those, when you wake up every morning and you're, you just have these intense flu symptoms come over you and you know that there's a way to fix this, you know, there's a way not to be sick and you're going to do just about anything you have to do to do it. And that's, that's kind of where I was. Right. I had a friend uh, in high school, we were really good friends. He played basketball too. And when I moved back from North Carolina, uh, his mom called me, wanted me to come talk to him that he was uh, hooked on painkillers. And he had been going to a Suboxone clinic, uh, going through that kind of treatment. And it just, it wasn't working. So I'd talked to him, talked him into going to rehab, which he had never gone to rehab before. He's just doing the Suboxone. He said, yes, I will go to rehab, but I need to go buy my grandmother's house because I've got these pair of shoes or whatever that I wanted. Well, on the way to the rehab, I noticed that he was high. He had gone to his grandmother's, gotten to her stash of pain pills. And I'm like, dude, you just agreed that Mm -hmm. you needed help. And I was taking you and you had me detour so that you could get pain medicine. I mean, how... What is the process there? I mean, from from your point of view, what and I'll say this, I can't understand because I've never dealt with this myself. Sure. So what is the thought process there? So first of all, man, listen, I I've been clean for 
about four years now. And even me, man, I will, you know, I still work with a lot of ministries and guys that are in addiction. And, I, and even me, I'm like, dude, just stop. Like, just stop doing that. What are you doing? You're running your life. And like, I was just there. And so I understand it's hard to understand for people. That's like, but it, it has such a grip on you. And when, when you're in it, it, it's it. Like, that's it. That's all your life is about. It's, it's, can I get my medicine first? Can I get, can I keep from getting sick? And then I'll figure out everything else. You know, then I'll figure out my family. Then I'll figure out my job. But that's, it is first in everything. There's nothing that comes before that, especially once you get that far down the road, man, where you've been doing it long enough and your, your brain is just, is, is locked into it. You know, that you've created these pathways in your brain that tell you that this is normal. This is what you have to do first. And then you can live your life after that. So, when you're taking your buddy to, to rehab, he's thinking my life is over. So, you know, I've, I've only got a few more hours before I'm, I'm done. So I need to, I got to get something in me before that. I mean, that's, you know, that's his, all he's thinking. Yeah. Now, uh, have you been into rehab or did you do some kind of medical detox or how did that all transpire for you? No. So I went to the ranch, uh, Renewal Ranch in mm -hmm. Conway. So that's a, it's a year-long faith-based recovery facility uh, where they take you out of the world and they pop you on this uh, this campus for the first— At the ranch. Well, yeah, at in the ranch. ranch. Yeah, at, at, on a ranch, basically, yeah. And uh, the fr it's for six months. You only see your family every or on Saturdays for a couple hours on Saturdays. Other than that, you were stuck there. I had never done rehab. I was, and now I was exceptionally good at hiding everything. Even even when I was stealing, you know, stealing from my parents and my wife and pawning all their stuff. Like I, it was a full time job. I worked very hard at you know keeping myself where I wasn't sick all the time, but also keeping it hidden enough to where they wouldn't intervene and make me go to rehab or make me, you know, just. So did they, did your wife and parents know you were addicted at that point? Yeah, they did. Um, I, I kept it from my wife. I mean, she was with me the whole time. So we've been together 17 years, I think. And we've been married for 11 years. Actually on Saturday, it was 11 years. She always thought for the longest, you know, yeah, he likes to party, he likes to have a good time, but you know, she had no idea it was that big of a problem. About five years before I got clean, so the last five years of my addiction, she knew like, it was getting really bad. I, she she found a Discover Discover credit card bill that I ran up like eight thousand dollars in cash advances, and uh, that's when she realized that well, this is much worse than than I thought it was. And so for the last five years. Of my addiction in our marriage was it was tough, man. It was you know just me lying all the time and her knowing I was lying, but you know not wanting to leave or, or holding out hope. And then she got pregnant, and we got pregnant with the twins, and you know, she was just stuck. Who are the from, cutest little kids, by the way? <laughs> yeah, they're wild. They're cute, but they're wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there she got pregnant with them, and then she was just stuck, you know, in her head and in, in mine. I, I'm sure I used it to keep her there. I knew that she would stay now towards the end man we would she'd catch me using or she catch me using or lying or stealing or she would find some drugs or she would catch me you know in, in some kind of big lie and uh depending on the night or the day she would scream at me or cry or try and tell me to leave or beg me to just let her go and man i would just it got to the point where I'd heard it enough and I just, I was already so ashamed of myself and so sick of my life. And I would just stand there while she would cry with just this blank look on my face. And I would just watch her cry. And I just, I couldn't feel anything anymore. You know, I was just done with, done with everything. I was so sick of my life. So you were, you were basically numb to any emotion, yeah. any outside. Oh, absolutely. So, so would those times where you would use would you stop for a moment and say, if I do this, my wife's going to find out and then she's going to be mad. Was there ever that guilt and shame that oh, that came in there? Every day. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, when I go to bed every night, I would say, all right, tomorrow I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. I'm not going to get high tomorrow. You know, whatever it is, I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to hurt anybody else. And, but I knew, I knew I would. And I mean, it's, what addiction does is it makes you it it bullies you like you're you know you bully yourself so like i i wanted so bad for this to be over with and i didn't want to do this anymore but at the same time like i knew what i was about to do tomorrow and i hated myself for it i mean i hated it and i knew i was about to let everybody down again and i 
you know, I was just, I was just so sick of myself, but I was so scared of what I would do next. And it was, it was me who was deep in there somewhere, the actual real me, you know, knew that I was about to do something terrible, but I didn't want to anymore. I was sick of it. I wanted to do right, but I just, I knew I wouldn't allow that. Mm. Going to Renault Ranch. Now I've had a little bit of contact with that ministry, but not a whole lot. But from from looking at their guidelines, they are tremendously strict. Mm. As to where I had uh, a client once that went to um, an inpatient rehab in Searcy, and I won't call the name because there's only one there. So. <laughs> yeah, um, I know what it is. And yeah. so he was in there for maybe, I mean, he was there for the detox part. And I went and saw him, and he was high as a kite. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, bro, where are you getting drugs at? And he was like, there, I can get them here. Yeah. And I'm going, in a rehab center? You know, and so what is broken with that side of the system that that you can still have access there? Man, it's the same thing in prisons. You know, in prisons, you, it's, you can find drug dealers all day. N.A. was kind of the same situation for me, um, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, but you know, I always called it new acquaintances. Mm. That's, that's really all it was, you know, just new, new drug dealers that I would meet, people who, you know, on one night would come and really had it in their head, you know, I'm going to get clean, I'm going to, this is going to work, I'm going to get out of this life. And, uh, but at the same time, you're, they're coming in with 20 other people who are doing the exact same thing. And the next night, who knows what they're going to be thinking. So yeah. now they, now we get to know each other and, you know, we've got all new connections now. Right. I had a <clears throat> church member one time that was alcoholic and went to AA and he said, man, going to AA just makes me want to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing all of these stories from all these other people just made me want to get drunk. Yeah. Now, typically with addiction, painkillers, whether it be painkillers, whether it be alcohol, whether it be pornography, whatever that addiction is, typically we are feeding that to ourselves to repress something else. Mm-hmm. Was there at, at some point where you noticed that it was a repression or was it just that you got hooked on that feeling? Well, both. Um, it was hooked. You know, I was hooked for the for the first good while of it, but you know, once you live that life for long enough, you start letting people down. You start lying to people, breaking people's hearts. It's this shame is overwhelming. So yeah, you have to do something to numb that pain, numb that shame and guilt that you feel. And you know, because you feel so much shame and guilt that you just you don't want to feel that for you know all the time, and you will. So you just tell yourself, this is the kind of person you are now. It's just this is who I am now. I'm doing what I have to do. They should understand this. And it's not my fault. Because to you, in in some way, as the addict, it's no more different than somebody taking a Tylenol because they have a headache. Right. I need to take this so that I can be normal of so, who I am. Yeah, that's that's exactly what what you hear, man. I I got to take this so I can be normal. I got to take this so that I can get through the day, so that I can function normally. Because mm-hmm. if you know if I don't have this, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to be sick and. I'm going to screw up the whole day. I'm going to screw up my job. So I have to get high to, to do my job today. So how are you able to go to school and be productive while being high? Well, that's the only time I could be productive was when I was high. You know, after, after a little bit, that was it. So, you know, like I said, I had a ton of pain pills, unlimited. So it's, it would have been different if, you know, if I was running out all the time and had to, had to fend for myself. But, you know, I was just, I was fed them from the doctor while I was at school. Mm-hmm. And and from what I what I understand, thankfully, at no point during that were you uh, incarcerated or anything like that for selling, no, or or distributing or no, even possessing, no, no. For I mean, I committed probably several thousand felonies, you know, in those eight nineteen years. But you know, I was I was blessed. Uh, unbelievably so to but to that not is not a confession to any one felony no that, no that maybe <laughs> right, yeah, still within the limits of uh statutation right uh, yeah, that's you true know. good point thank you yeah so typically there would be a doctor client privilege here but since this is on a <laughs> right. podcast i don't think that works yeah, that yeah i was just so, kidding anyway yeah so, yeah yeah your name really isn't neil gray <laughs> right. is it yeah yeah no. i definitely don't work for the company I, yeah I <laughs> yeah it was bella right yeah bella yeah, yeah. i thought so yeah. and they do roofs and stuff <laughs> right, right? Yeah. yeah so why why do you think that you were able to get away with it without getting caught i mean like i said man uh, you know 
pure luck, first of all, or and for a while, for a while I was it was legal because I was given these pain pills. You know, it was, it was a, a prescription. But after that, man, uh, the grace of God. I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, because I'd seen you know, all my buddies around me were were getting caught, going to jail. And I should, I was, it's not, it's not like I was careful. You know, I was, I was as reckless as they come. And even my buddies, you know, of course that had been caught before would be riding with me like, dude, you've got to slow down or dude, you, why are you, you can't take that with you. And, you know, I was like, I'm fine, man. It's no big deal. So I wasn't careful. You know, I just, just never got popped. Uh, what was it like at the point where the doctor came to you and said, Neil, you can't have this much anymore. Did yeah. he say, I think you've got a problem and maybe you need treatment or was it just, I'm not going to give this to you? No, anymore? it was, it was, I'm going to write your prescription for Darvacets, which were about half the strength. And, and then I'm cutting you off. I'm not giving you any more. And I mean, he, he didn't take the time to explain it or break it to me gently. Like, that was it. And mm -hmm. So he gave me one little prescription of those to, to wean myself off of my four years long addiction and, you know, I should have been good after that, but yeah, somehow it wasn't. So was that kind of during the time where the, the, the push of the war on drugs started then to really take effect and, yeah. and doctors were beginning to be concerned? Yeah. There started to be a lot more heavy, heavily regulated, um, use of, of pharmaceuticals around that time. Yeah. And it's, it wasn't difficult to, to find them still. Cause I'd, I'd known, you know, got to know a lot of people who got steady prescriptions of them, met a lot of old people that, um, you know, poor old people that didn't didn't want to take them but needed money. And so that worked out well for me. It wasn't really as difficult, but, you know, it wasn't as consistent as just having my own prescription. Right. So tell me about the day that you said, okay, I, I need help. Never, never once. I mean, Never I, once. Nope. I, uh, I didn't, I had it all under control. And by the time it got out of control, I, uh, I was, I was so full of shame and guilt. You know, I'd had, had 18 month old babies, twins at home, uh, a, a amazing wife and never done anything but good by me. You know, mom and dad saying, I mean, everything, man, I just, I got to the point where I couldn't change. I tried. I tried to go get the Suboxone route that you mentioned earlier. Went to a doctor to get that, and I tried several things. I tried NA and all this, and so I mean, I, I you know I knew I had a problem, but I I never thought like I can't handle it. You know, like uh, eventually I'll I'll get past this. But then I got to the point where I guess it sunk in that I I couldn't get past this. That it wasn't going to work, and I figured it myself. You know, I tried NA, I tried this doctor route, I've tried these other other things to to try and get clean, and I can't. And I'm sick of letting my family down, and so I ended up trying to take my life uh, a couple times. Instead, God threw me in a jail cell. I got arrested of all things for shoplifting um, because. Because towards the end, I, I got on meth as well. I've, I've, one of the smartest things I'd ever done was uh, decided to get off of painkillers by starting to use meth instead. I'd heard other people try this, so which isn't uncommon, right? No, at not at all, not at all. Because and so when I tried meth, I realized that, uh, that I wasn't feeling the detox symptoms as bad from from opiates. So it actually worked. <laughs> I got off of opiates and I started doing meth pretty much full time, several times a day for about probably about probably about two months and then it, i just brought the pain pills back into the fold and i was doing both of them all the time you know several times a day so once i started doing meth man i started shoplifting because it, it just makes you it makes you crazy and i started shoplifting every store i got to have a pocket full of cash and i'd walk into a store and like i'm gonna steal something you know whatever it is i'm gonna put something in my pocket and leave out of here and i have no idea why but I just, I never went anywhere without stealing something, shoplifting. So what was the thing you stole when you got caught? <laughs> it was a, a scale. Uh, I broke my wife's scale in the bathroom uh, like a month or so before. And I was wearing basically this, just a, a t-shirt and jeans. And uh, I went into to Kohl's and come to the find The worst out, place to go shoplifting. <laughs> everybody knows that. <laughs> everybody knows that but me. And every time I tell that story, like, dude, why did you steal from Kohl's? You stupid. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I just went in there and I traded my shoes. I took some old hard 
black penny loafers and traded those in for some new a new pair of their shoes and just put my own mine in their box and switched them and then i walked over and saw a scale on my way out so i just tucked it up under my shirt literally just poking out the sides of my shirt it was wider than i was I just put my arms over started, started walking out the door and this big old dude came running around put his hands up and i said yep yep you're right man here you go and just handed it to him immediately he's like come on let's go in here he went there he called the cops and went to jail and so you stayed in there for a couple of hours before somebody come bonded you out? Or? Nobody bonded me. No, they, uh, eight hours. It was, it, <laughs> yeah, I was in there for eight hours. It felt like a, a month. And, uh, like I was just, you know, I, and again, I started detoxing and I was just on all these drugs and meth and I was, just, I was banging on the walls in there, like telling them that I need to, I should be out by now. And, you know, like an hour in, and I'm pretty sure that's why I ended up staying for eight. I probably would have been out in a couple of hours. But did, did anybody know you were there? Not for the first five or six hours. And then they uh, they got, let me call somebody, and so I called my brother. Um, I actually did try and call my wife. They don't. Uh, they still don't believe I tried to call my wife first, but because I wasn't, she wasn't going to be real excited to hear from me. Mm-hmm. But um, but I tried her once, and the phone wouldn't wouldn't go through. So I called my brother, and uh, he ended up coming to pick me up. And what was his first words when when you got he out he, into his car? He wasn't surprised. Um, he's like, I think he asked me if I'd talked to Rebecca yet, and I said nope. <laughs> no, let's just take me home, dude. I'll talk to her when I get there. Yeah, you you said. How about we just act like this didn't happen? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much what it was, man. Like he he knew how bad off I was, and he's like, dude, have you talked to Rebecca? Have you talked to mom and dad? And I'm like, no, let's just just take me home. It's been a long night. I'm gonna go to sleep, and then we'll deal with this tomorrow. You know, yeah, put it off. So if you if you didn't have that moment where you said, okay, I've got to get help, mm-hmm. what? put you in motion to go to the ranch getting arrested so so when i got arrested mom uh, my mom and dad and rebecca and this is the coles incident yeah yeah it's the only time i've ever been in jail so they started looking around and found uh, found the ranch for me and you know my mom said that she she saw she always kind of looks on the bright side when it comes to me anyway and she said that she saw this as a cry for help and so um which looking back, it was. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, honestly, man, I'm not. Gonna, I was somewhat relieved to to just be taken out because I mean, I was just I was spiraling. I didn't know where I was going to land, and I, it just felt good for somebody else to kind of take control for a minute, mm-hmm. and get it out of my hands. But, but yeah, so they found the ranch, um, and when I got out of jail, they're like, "We're going up here. You're interviewing there," and. And that's it. You're, that's what's happening. Or Rebecca's leaving. And she's taking the kids with her, and I lose what I what little I've been able to hold on to up at this point. And you believe that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, she was. Yeah, she was about gone anyway. She was so sick of it. And, you know, she is. Like I said, it was just the kids. You know, we had had eighteen month old kids at home, and I actually was at home all the time when I was supposed to be. I did most of my running around during the day, you know, from eight to five when I was supposed to be working, but. I was usually at home with the kids, and by then I'd found something for the night, and I could actually be there with, you know, take care of the kids and help with them. But, you know, twins is a big deal, and going thinking you're going to leave and have to be a single mom's really difficult decision. So I was able to kind of, I guess, play on that fear of hers and keep her around. And mm-hmm. so did you? Did you have the fear of of people just not just your wife? But people just saying, just writing you off and saying, well, he, we just aren't going to put up with him anymore, whether it be family or your mom or dad or close friends that you may have had. Not so much my parents, man. Like, and like, this was this was when they realized that when I got arrested was the moment that they realized how bad it was. You know, I was, I'd been pretty good, even though I was I'd steal some stuff and pawn their stuff and I'd always get it back and make some excuses about it. I you know, need some money for it. And they just wanted to believe it so bad. You know, they just didn't want to believe what was really happening. So that's the moment I got arrested was when they realized, well, this is much worse than and we're letting ourselves believe. What? Was probably way worse than what oh, yeah. they were letting themselves <laughs> yeah. believe. Yeah, it was weird. they had no idea. They had no idea I'd been using needles, and mm-hmm. yeah, I'd been doing that for 
probably eight years at that point. And I mean, every, every kind of drug you imagine, yeah, they had no idea how yeah. bad it was. So Renault Ranch, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't do any type of medical detox. You're just thrown in there. Right. So what was that detox like for you? 35 days. 30, I was sick for 35 days. I didn't sleep the first nine days I was there. And typically they want you to go somewhere uh, and get detox. Like you can go to the, the hospital and get detox for a few days and whatever before you go. But I just kept using uh, up until the day. Actually, the day, the second day I was there was the first day I didn't use because mm. I took some with me. But yeah, I was, I went up there and of course I'd been taking Suboxin too, going to the doctor for Suboxin. Usually I would just get the Suboxin and trade that for the, the drugs that I wanted. And so, but I would keep some for the days that I would, I couldn't find anything. They did help, you know, but Suboxin gets in your bones and that, that stuff stays in your system for a long time. So that, that's what drew it out for so long. But, you know, for the first two weeks, I was really sick, throwing up and not sleeping. And it was just, it was it was bad. And it honestly, physically, it was probably the worst that it's ever been. But it, in my head, it wasn't because I knew that it was actually going to end this time, you know, that I was going to get past this. And just knowing that without the option of going and getting a fix and making it last longer now, just knowing that this would actually end, man, it's, it's so peaceful. You know, just knowing that, all right, just finally, it's actually going to end now. And having a support system there that had been through oh, that kind of hell yeah. that you were dealing with right then. Yeah. You can talk to anybody there and they've, I mean, it's your, they have your exact story, you mm -hmm. know, so like they've been there and Hey, look at me and I'm better now. You know, you, you will get better. Now, 35 days, that kind of seems like a long time for, for symptoms to stop from, yeah. from the DTs. Yeah. Is that, was, is that normal? Methadone and Suboxone, um, those, that's the stuff that gets in your bones. That's the stuff that lasts, that makes your DTs last forever. Opiate, if I was just on regular opiates, like oxycodone, um, it probably lasted two weeks. I mean, I would have probably been kind of fatigued for, you know, about a month, but um, the, the, Nausea, nausea and just sweats and the just crazy fatigue and all this, that, that probably wouldn't last more than two weeks. Gotcha. So at the ranch, um, they, it's, of course, it's a religious, it's a ministry. Mm -hmm. There's like a Bible study every day. Mm -hmm. And then is it like the first six months you, you're you just in this intense therapy? And then after that, they start putting you to work somewhere where you're kind of integrated back into society, I guess would be the best way to say. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so the first six months you're on campus there and Monday through Wednesday, you got five different or about 15 different pastors that come and teach an hour long class. So you're in class. Wait, a pastor preached just an hour. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, they give well, them a book to teach out. They weren't Baptists. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. No, they wouldn't allow those at the ranch. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they would come and they would teach from eight to five Monday through Wednesday. And then on Thursdays we would go serve. So they would have just these community projects. We'd go mow people's yards or, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so they would just, they would send groups out to uh, all the guys out to go serve the community on Thursdays and Fridays, Saturdays, we would have their chapel service. And then our family could come to chapel service and hang out with us for a few hours afterwards. And then Sundays we, we would go to different churches every Sunday. We would do the, the, um, the service at the church is cardboard testimonies and somebody would get their, their full testimony. And mm -hmm. that was an average week at the ranch for the first six months. That's exactly what you do. After that, they move you to some apartments and you, you all stay in the same apartments, but you can get your car back, uh, you get a job and you have a curfew every night and you come back, you have Bible study twice a week, a check-in once a week. Um, so yeah, you know, lots of accountability, random drug tests, things like that. But, the, but you're kind of getting... Yeah, you know, slowly dipped back into the, into right. the pool. But it but it is very strict. Mm -hmm. Once again, you yeah. don't break curfew. Right. You don't. Uh, but then the the consequence of that is what if you were to break curfew? curfew? Uh, I mean, like, like I said, they're pretty strict, man. They don't you don't get a whole lot of second chances to not get kicked out. You know, mm -hmm. you do something wrong like that because there's the the thought is, and it's accurate, that there's somebody out there dying to get a bed right now. Yeah. And so if you're not gonna if you're not gonna go by the rules, if you don't mm -hmm. mean this, then you know, we're gonna give it to somebody else. Right. Because their waiting list right now is, oh, is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So you get through that six month program, you get through the second six month program, and then 
how does that how does that work though now that you're in an apartment with others and you're married and you have kids so yeah so yeah let me correct what what i said if you're not married with kids you move into the apartment and and then you you know do all that if you have a family then you move back home and do your 6 months there but you know, i still had to come back every for bible studies twice a week for check in once a week um you know which I still was had to like a 45 minute drive yeah, for yeah, you yeah come little rock to conway yeah which i was fine with man i loved it you know i would have gone every night if I would've, they would have told me to cuz that's what felt like home you know it's, i mean it yeah, it is weird going back home and and trying to get back into the after six months of not being there, you know, especially if my kids are two years old now and you know all my wife has known as was our history together, and so you know it's going to be tough on her too to kind of reacclimate and learn if she can really trust me if I'm being honest anymore, you know what's going on, which is totally understandable. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty awkward for, you know, for the first month or so getting back into it. But, um, but I loved that I could go back to the ranch for a Bible study whenever I was having trouble, you know, just acclimating to my new life. You know, I have people I can go talk to, you know, counselors and, and staff members that I could sit down and talk to. People that, that you knew would understand your story yep. and that had walked with you, not just some random therapist that answered an 800 number somewhere. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that's what's missing from a lot of our rehabs is that personal touch, you know, that you're not just some chart walking around out right. there that, that has a number assigned to you. Right. Uh, and, and that's what I really, really value about Renewal Ranch is that uh, you aren't just a number, you're an individual. Right. So you mentioned reacclimating in your home. Um, were there times where, you felt like your wife would question your authenticity. And when that happened, did you react with compassion or did, were there times that it just really aggravated you that you couldn't believe here I've been gone six months and you don't trust me right. after all this? Right. Yeah. No, no, I was completely prepared for, for a lack of trust to start with, you know, after a few months, you know, of like, look, you know who I am now. This is how it's going now. You know, she would, she could always spot my pupils from across the room, you know, whenever I was in my addiction, I'd walk in the house and she could see that you know, my pupils were pinpoint. And so, you know, after a few months I'd come in and uh, after being clean and living there for a few months, I'd come in and she's like, let me see your eyes. And that was always, let me see your eyes. Let me see your eyes. Mm -hmm. I always knew I was in trouble then. And so, but I'd, I'd made that, you know, kind of promise to myself that, you know, I'm going to understand this because good Lord, the hell I've put this girl through, you know, so I'm going to understand, I'm going to be consistently understanding as long as it needs to be. And so, you know, I, I, I think she would even say I did, you know, pretty well with that. And And the fact that she did stay. Yeah, exactly. When she should have been gone a, lot a of thousand women times. That would do that. Yeah. yeah, she should have been gone a lot. Man. But mm-hmm. She stayed, and so yeah. So how do you deal with? Uh, and I'm going to just assume textbook. How do you deal with the urges today after recovery? I don't have any anymore. I mean, I never. Um, I had a few. You know, uh, obviously, for the first six months, it, it's tough, man. You're retraining your brain, and and the physical symptoms are still there. You know, they'll kick in every once in a while, and you'll get the itch. And but you know, it's easy there because you've got guys, especially at the ranch. Even if you took off running, you're, it's going to be a long time where you get anywhere in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it really is out in the middle yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and same thing for John three sixteen. It's out there in Batesville, just out in the middle. I mean, you would you'd be gone for days on on foot trying mm-hmm. to get to a payphone or something. Um, What's that? <laughs> yeah, trying to get to Walmart. <laughs> yeah, and use their phone. It was easy the first six months, but or I'm sorry, hard the first six months. It got easier uh, after that, but man, after after a year of it. A year and a half. After a year and a half, I've just I've never even considered it. I never. It's just it is. I've been given a new life, and when I think back on that, it's like looking back on somebody else's life. You know, just it's insane. The stuff that I would think, the stuff that I would do. You know, it's just it's insane. I can't believe that that was me that did all that. Mm-hmm. Could you come to terms with that? Wasn't you that did all of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you tell yourself a lot of stuff, but. Uh, of course, I'm ashamed of, of some of the things I, I did, but 
I, I don't hold on to it anymore. Um, you know, what's the point of that? Just you're wasting a lot of energy and time and I've been forgiven. Um, you know, my family's forgiven me, so I'm just not going to hold on to it anymore. Gotcha. So you've been sober, did you say four? Um, it'd be four years on June or July 18th. In that, that four years of sobriety, what would happen if tomorrow, and I don't know that you still play basketball. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> played but, last night. Uh, so what would happen if that same type of injury took place and now you're going into a surgery knowing your past, how do you deal with that as a, as a person who is sober? Ibuprofen. That's it. Um, I've had several injuries. Actually, I think God gave me an injury while I was at the ranch to kind of test my resolve. And I uh, was playing volleyball and rolled an ankle and limped on it for a few days. And somehow, while I was limping on my ankle, just, I guess the muscle in my behind my pelvis just dissolved. And my I had this hip dysplasia kind of thing that started popping. My hip started popping out and laying on my sciatic nerve. And I would miss, I had to miss class, just go lay on my back in class. And it hurt. And I thought I'd, I thought it herniated a disc again. And I, said, I mean, are you kidding? Like, I finally get clean and now I'm going to have this pain to deal with. But even then, man, like four months in, I was like, well, you know, give me some ibuprofen. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going back, man. Mm -hmm. I'm not going back. And so if I did, I, I, I cut my hand open, actually playing basketball, and end up with twelve stitches right here. I'm beginning to think sports in general <laughs> not, is just, uh, yeah, not a good idea. Yeah, I literally pray every time I play, like just, just not a terrible injury tonight. Like it's just <laughs> a small one's fine. Uh, but yeah, I went up there. There's ten sheathing behind the basketball goal, and there's this little piece of metal sticking out. So whenever I went up for the layup, I slammed up against the wall, slammed my hand against it, and just cut. You know, cut my hand wide open. Yeah. So anyway, I went to the doctor and uh, to get it stitched up, and they stitched it up and just kind of ushered me out. And I was like, y'all aren't going to offer me painkillers. This is really bad. And like, sorry. And we're like, no, I just, no one's, I haven't had the chance to turn down painkillers yet. And I was really excited to come in and you guys offered me some painkillers. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I told her that. We started talking and she was telling me about her son is having issues right now with addiction. Mm -hmm. And so we started talking about the ranch and she were, she's working right now to get him in the ranch. Great. Which is another reason that I'm just, I'm not, I'm not holding on to that shame. You know, I'm, it's the reason I'm here today. Like I will talk about this all the time to anybody who wants to listen because, right. you know, I've been delivered from this and I, I need other people to know the story so that they know that there is a way out. Right. You know, uh, I, I say often everybody has a chapter in their book that they don't want read out loud, but we really can't start to begin that healing process until it's at least read out loud in a therapy office. Right. You know, and, once we get to the point of where we can tell our story, I don't think that that true authentic healing comes to the point of where I'm not ashamed anymore. Uh, and I asked you the question of, can you come to the resolve that that wasn't Neil? And that is, you know, in, in saying that who you are today is Neil. Mm. Um, that's who your parents knew you growing up was Neil. Those things that you did outside uh, within addiction really isn't who you are. That's who the addiction morphed you into. Yeah. And if we look at our story like that, it's easier to tell because we we can say, hey, you know, yeah, I did those things, but that's not who I am. Right. And and in that, there is there's a lot of comfort uh, there. So if you could tell anybody struggling with an addiction today, anything, what would it be? To be honest about it, and that's that's the biggest thing that's going to keep them there is that shame and hiding that shame and hiding hiding what they're doing. I mean, listen, there's really no rock bottom that's the same for anybody. So unfortunately, especially with addiction, especially with opiates, hitting rock bottom takes not only a lot longer than we like, but a lot more times than we would like. You know, we're going to hit it hundreds and hundreds of times, not just you know more times than we would like, but if, obviously of the people who love us. But man, it's just there will be a time when you hit rock bottom and, and you realize like how serious this is and just telling somebody, you know, just cause I never told anybody until I got arrested. I wasn't planning on telling anybody that, you know, that cared about me or that loved me that would have done something about it. But, you know, just, just opening up and saying that, look, I can't do this by myself. I can't do it. 
And that's, that is, that's the first step. Cause if you're not honest with somebody else, you're never going to be honest with yourself about it. So just, just get it out there. And, and one thing I heard you say was you were in control. Mm. So if you had it all under control, what was the point of having to tell anybody? Else? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm Doc Brian, and we thank you for joining us here today on Doc Talks. And now, as we go into the second part of this, a Doc Talks DX, you'll find that episode on Patreon. Neil, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, I'm thankful that you do uh, and are able to tell your story. So, uh, thank you for for being here with us. I, if it's okay with you, in the description of this podcast, I'm going to put uh, Renewal Ranch, list them as a resource, um, yeah, and uh, the National Narcotics Hotline, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, all of that kind of works together. So if they wanted to find Neil Gray, where would they look? I, I mean, I could give them your home address. Yeah, I mean, if you want me to give the address. <laughs> no. We actually we just bought no. a house here, so I can give you my yeah. old address. Um, and yeah. I'm I'm at uh, Regeneration New Life Church has a uh, a recovery ministry that we actually we just launched a couple of years ago uh, at the Greater Little Rock Campus in Maumelle. So I'm there every Thursday night. Um, I I get to speak there every once in a while, and so that's one of the ministries I work with. I work with you know, the M18 Recovery Ministry. I, I, I say I work with them, and I just I hang out with them. Like I said these places feel like home to me. And so when there's people with a common struggle that are, are trying to do better by, you know, with their lives and they're hanging around like-minded people, I'm, I'm trying to get in the middle of that. And so, uh, M18 recovery is, is a big part of, of my life and my days. Um, I'm at the ranch as often as I can be. So, I mean, just in recovery circles, man, it's amazing how many, how many people you start to, to meet when you're in recovery and, as long as I avoided it, man, like my most of my closest friends now are, you know, in recovery and they're, they're part of these ministries or run these ministries. And so uh, that's kind of the crowds that I run in. Gotcha. Of course, you can find you on Facebook and I think you're on Instagram too. Yeah. Kind of, sort of. Yeah. I've posted uh, like one, one, or, one or two things on Instagram. <laughs> so we'll put those social media links yeah, uh, also do. in this description. Of course, as I said, Doc Brian here, you can find me at thedocbrian.com. On Instagram, the underscore doc underscore Brian. Uh, at the bottom of my website, the doc Brian, there's a social media bar there with all of my social media links. Uh, once again, thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. Doc Talks is on the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at BeFrankNetwork.com. Once again, thank you for being here with us. Make sure to follow us over to Doc Talks DX on Patreon. And thank you for listening, Neil. Once again, thank you for being here with hey, us thank today. You, doc.